Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners, and welcome to a special episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. We are here with the dynamic director, writer, actor, cinematographer duo of Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead to talk about their new film, The Endless, as well as a little bit about the rest of their work. I'm Aaron, and as per usual, I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick. Hey, everyone. We're going to keep the majority of this episode spoiler-free, but we are going to ask the guys some detailed questions at the end. Those of you who have seen their films will definitely want to stick around for that, and we'll be sure to give a warning ahead of time so that those of you who haven't can come back after you do. So Justin and Aaron, welcome guys. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Oh, thank you for having us. Hello. All right. Well, as we mentioned earlier, you guys have this new film that is out today on video on demand and rental services. And we'll talk about that shortly, but we wondered first if we could get to know you and find out more about how the two of you came to meet each other. Did you... Were you working as directors individually prior to meeting? Just what's the background behind how this kind of duo, this tandem of, of the two of you came to be together? We met uh, about a decade ago uh, at a commercial production company here in Los Angeles where we were interns. We were both trying to break into commercials as like a stepping stone in one's directing career. Maybe the most important lesson we learned at that internship was that Commercials aren't stepping stones to careers in directing anymore. That's where people who are already fancy go to make fancy money. Stepping stone to more money. Yeah. <laughs> if you have, if you have but, money. But, but we, uh, you know, despite the fact that that's not a real way to people become a director making a living anymore, uh, not at least not for most people, uh, we met each other and, uh, and, and hit it off and we just started working together more and more on uh, what are called spec ads, which are like commercials that you do so you can build up a reel and maybe someday get paid to do a commercial. Uh, we did that unsuccessfully, but a lot imagine of spending them. your own money in order to make a commercial for a different company that will not use it. Yeah, that's what a spec ad is, and people really do them. That's uh, awesome. Gosh, back in the day, yeah, and that's that, that's slumming it right there for sure. <laughs> Having to do that—that's that. some, uh, that's some like late stage capitalism bullshit I've ever heard. It, you know, yeah. Yeah, so we, we both uh, sunk a bunch of money into commercials, making fake commercials that we never got back. And then we made some short films. We made some very small music videos for musicians you probably never heard of. And uh, then one day we realized we had enough money to go make a micro-budget indie feature. What then, was that? Can you disclose? Uh, no, not the movie. How much around? How much did, you, oh. did it cost you? Um, before delivery, it was about $20,000. $20, wow, that's impressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you seen the film? That's impressive. Yeah, yeah. We we, we really watched that movie recently at a film festival that did as a double feature with The Endless. It's gonna, I, I don't want to say, I don't want to sound arrogant. It's like, oh, I, it, it was just like, we watched it, we we're pleasantly surprised. It's like, oh, hey, our good, first movie. Good job, guys. Yeah. <laughs> you, you assume that your first movie is just this thing that you look back and cringe on. And of course, you know, we've been, before that, we've been making films for 10 years each. But, but really, ultimately, in terms of anything consequential, that was our first movie. And you think that that's going to be something that you put up, your mom puts up, 
on the fridge, you know, and just like, cute, cute. But uh, when we watched it, it was like, oh, I, I like this movie. I actually like it as a movie and not like as a thing that I made because now we've enough time has passed and we've divested ourselves of uh, of our own credit from it. You know, for for us watching Resolution, I don't really remember the making of it as much as I've just and I mean this. I, I don't mean this to to, um, to to sound humble, but but I truly just watch it to enjoy the the two lead performances. They're incredible. It's Pete uh, Salella and Vinnie Curran. Yeah, they are. They are very good. Well, as far as this co-directing that you guys do in college football, uh, the rule is if you have two quarterbacks, you don't have a quarterback because you can't decide. You have to have a leader. And I know that there's been success when it comes to having co-directors. I know the Russo brothers have made a name for themselves with in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Do you guys find there are specific challenges that you face when co-directing? Are there benefits to working together in the director's chair? And, and what, what are some of those challenges and, and benefits that you guys find? Funny, we were, we were talking about this today. We, we get asked that pretty often, I would say, of a question of, of our process or how we co-direct and stuff. And I think what it is, is a lot of directors, uh, whether they're brothers or not, but when they co-direct, a lot of their creativity ends up being a product of conflict. And it's just not the case for us. It's it's the exact opposite. We are very in sync in, in a way that's kind of, it's been described as creepy. And uh, even though we're not brothers and uh, we just have the same taste, we're definitely trying to build the same movie. And so we have a lot of discussions, rarely have disagreements, but when we have disagreements, normally what we end up doing is realizing that both of us are wrong and the, the real solution is still out there. Um, so there's not compromise. It's not, it's not that. It's just like, oh, we just haven't found it yet. We got to do something else. That, that, I would say that's happened, what, 100% of the time we've had a disagreement. And, and we're getting better and better at recognizing it rather than like digging in, you know. I mean, that's, that's kind of it. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is we don't rehearsal. That's it. Yeah. Re- rehearsal and preparation in general, just going into every job, no matter what it is, uh, whether it's a feature film or a TV show or whatever, or a commercial, whatever it is. And in pre-production, taking our, you know, now something like 35 or 40 years of collective filmmaking experience and anticipating things that could go wrong and just heading them off before that happens. And just generally not having a philosophy of like, hey, let's just get all the ingredients to set and figure it out. It's like, no, let's figure it out before. Let's figure it out well, way before. Whether it's performances, whatever it is. And that's really good for making films. And it's really bad for having an interesting answer about the things that when people are like, hey, what's the thing that went wrong on set? And it's like, Nothing really went wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's turned into arguments, not, not between us, but just in general in, in life. Often when, uh, when the stakes get higher, right? So when, um, clock is ticking and once you, and the longer it takes to figure this thing out, uh, and that, that, that goes for every relationship that goes for marriages, you know, or if the stakes are financial or something like that, which on film is the same thing as your time running out. I think that's it. And so one of the big ways we avoid that is we just talk a whole lot about the movie uh, and rehearse it and plan it before we hit set. But it's weird, though, because we still don't, you know, we don't like make like we don't make detailed animatics of our movie and edit it together or anything like that before we shoot. I think if we had to do that to explain things to each other, that would be that we would just we should not be working together unless we were doing a complicated sequence. I mean, we, we, we don't even, our, our shot lists are detailed, but they're not, you know, they're, they're not insane. 
uh, it's not like we, we, you could, you could see a book of storyboards or something and be like, wow, it's just the movie because they plan so well. It's just two people who happen to be very in sync. That's awesome. Do you ever foresee working separately? Is that in your plans at, at any time? Or do you think right now it's just going to be a partnership going forward until you get tired of it? Yeah. If you ever see what we do on our own, you'll be like, oh, they should work together. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's one way, one way to stay together then. You're being successful that way, at least. I can definitely see the the chemistry that lives with you guys in your performance of The Endless. In fact, I didn't know that you guys were starring in The Endless as, as co-directors as well. That's something that's very fascinating to us, to see actors direct the films that they're in. Clint Eastwood does this a lot. I know that there are several other big name directors that, that do this as well. What is that like? How do you guys, and I, I don't want a big process, but what's that overall kind of approach in acting and directing yourselves? Is it a lot like your pre-production process of just talking through things or is it work? Does it work differently? It's still, everything is preparation. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, um, it's kind of cheating in a way in terms of performing in it because you've been with the project since its conception, or at least in our case, since its conception. And we have our hands in so many different aspects of the production. It's our third movie. We're working with a lot of the same collaborators so you kind of have a shorthand. And then like the rest of our films, it's just tons and tons of rehearsal. And it's interesting you you, you, you use the, the word chemistry. We've made several films now that oftentimes the performances are defined by people saying, like, oh, they have good chemistry. Um, I'm increasingly convinced that chemistry is rehearsal. <laughs> that it's like people are noticing nuances in things. It's like, wow, look how they interact. It's like, no, because you found a bunch of tiny little things in rehearsal. And then it translates on screen as being like, oh, they there's minutia in the way they interact and there's mm -hmm. things like that. It's like, Oh no, that's, that's rehearsal. That's preparation because our, our relationship is wildly different than what it is in the endless. And in spring, Lou and Nadi's relationship is wildly different than what it is in that movie. The only actually resolution Peter and Pete and Vinny actually do kind of have that relationship, but they're not old friends, which they play in the movie. Right. They had just known each other for about a year at that point or something like that. And not closely. They don't, they barely see each other. And every time they get together, you'd swear they've been buddies for. Yeah, we, we just sit back and watch them have, have at each other. It's great. I guess when you handcuff somebody for a week, it comes. <laughs> kind of yeah, better. Get close, right? Real close. Did you name the characters after yourselves as a, a way to keep it simpler when you were filming? Or is there some sort of meta reason for that? I mean, everything about the Endless is this mysterious universe that you guys have been building. So I just wondered if. If that was a kind of a, an intentional thing, or did you just conceive of these characters with those same names and or similar age difference with the Justin character being older than the Aaron character? So it seemed like it might be intentional there. Honestly, we never even noticed that we had the same names. Justin Justin's character is named after Justin Thoreau, our favorite actor, and Aaron's character is named after you. Uh, well, sweet. That yeah. We're going to just leave it at that because I like that answer. Yeah. <laughs> No, the, the real answer is we have, there's a, a whole bunch of little continuity points in Resolution. And one of them is that the characters of Aaron and Justin show up in Resolution, but they're in it for 30 seconds. When we made the decision of what to name those characters in Resolution, we just thought it would be fun. We just thought like, oh, it would be really fun. And then there's, there's a layer of mystery that it adds to the Endless that we just thought like, oh, well, we're not going to negate the continuity of Resolution. And uh, it makes the movie interesting. And so therefore it stays. Because if we change them and they were suddenly named like Jesse and Curtis, it does beg weird questions about how the endless ties into resolution, even though no one saw resolution. 
it just, uh, it's just once you start doing that, it, it starts asking more and more questions about what movies, does this exist in the same universe or doesn't it, you know? Mm-hmm. And in the UK, they come in the same package, literally. In the UK, it's going to be sold as a double disc. That's uh, awesome. Oh, get that's my what, hands on that. <laughs> I, was say, yeah, I was thinking, when I, when I purchased this, I want both. And I was trying to figure <laughs> out how to get both, right? <laughs> the UK release, the, the North American release is amazing by Wilgo. The UK release is also really amazing. And they used the really good theatrical poster as the cover. And it comes with resolution and like four hours of extra content. I can just imagine someone buying it in the UK and like, you're just immediately going to watch resolution after you watch the endless and just watching it and being like, wait, who's Jesse and Thomas. Why did you like, like you just, you perfect continuity, but for some reason you changed. Why did you do that? Yeah. Yeah. It it asks a lot of questions that granted you would have to be like an aficionado of resolution, but literally it might not have been the case Mm -hmm. had in the movie us not been like, Hi, I'm Aaron, and I'm Justin. If we hadn't done that in Resolution, we probably would have been named Jesse and Curtis or something. I love that it turned out this way. But it's so cool. Yeah, it's yeah. so cool that we have our first own first names. But it wasn't – I do find it funny when people say, like, so was it just easier on set? It's like, that's, man, that's we're actors of a movie, and we can't and we <laughs> I know. Like pretend someone's name is <laughs> a different name. Well, but you have so many <laughs> other jobs that you're dealing with at the same time. I thought, you know, it could, no, in no, this no. case, it could have been easier. I mean, to see you guys yelling at each other for messing up your each other's names from a director's point of view. Why aren't you getting my name right? Because you're the director. I don't know what you're doing. At least you didn't slip names. That would have been a real problem. That would have been really yeah. <laughs> No, the outtakes, this is this is obscure. Maybe not. The outtakes of Rush Hour 2. Actually, I think they play at the end of the credits of Rush Hour 2. That's why I, I think he keeps on calling, uh, in the presence of Don Cheadle, I think it's Chris Rock, keeps on calling Jackie Chan Jackie. It's like, Jackie, we'd love to see that, Jackie. Wouldn't we, Jackie? And then, and then they cut, and he's like, and you hear the cut, you know, Jackie, Jackie, we'd love to see that, wouldn't we, Jackie? And then Don Cheadle just goes, his name is Lee, <laughs> and like gets really in his face. And uh, so maybe maybe some people do struggle. Maybe so. Do you have any other genres that you'd want to try out? Obviously, we look at The Endless, and we look at Resolution in Spring, and they live in this world of sci-fi horror. Are there other genres that you'd want to explore after the success of three movies? Yeah, we do. We do anything. And I think we're fans of basically, I think the only thing we probably wouldn't do is a musical, probably, but maybe the right one. But that said, also, it's like, you're in the entertainment business. It's always hard enough to get a job as it is. And mm-hmm. there's anyone beating down our door to get us to do a romantic comedy. It's like, I, but and, and if we're stuck one place, sci-fi is a great place. Yeah. Yeah. I know that I've gotten a chance to to listen to other interviews with independent filmmakers and Jeff Nichols comes to mind. He's one of our, our favorite independent filmmakers. And oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, um, he's got a movie coming soon, I hope, right? Because Midnight... Uh, Mid- Midnight Bush, yeah, was his last night. I think he's got another one coming out, but I'm not quite sure. Full disclosure, we went to high school with him. So... Oh. Oh, okay. so, so, so we're not. Yeah, we're, we have a we have skin in the game. Yeah, he's he's a great filmmaker. So he's, there's there's definitely worse horses to bet on. <laughs> well, during the during the press tour of Midnight Special, he was interviewed and he was asked if you were given the keys to the kingdom, essentially of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, um, how would you respond to that? He answered it in such a delicate way where he said, "I respect." and admire the directors that get to work in those blockbusters. But I want to stay an independent filmmaker because I feel like it gives me the most creative freedom to tell the stories I want to tell. And I wondered, would you guys want to have those bigger opportunities to get into a director's chair of something like 
you know, a Sony Pictures blockbuster or the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Would that be something that you'd want to tackle? Or do you guys want to stick to being able just to have complete creative control over your stories and your characters and things like that? We'd be into any, honestly, we'd, we'd have to look, take every opportunity as it, as it comes. We had friends that directed a, and, or worked on Marvel movies that just loved the experience. So they didn't feel like they were stifled. They were just like, they were given, they were fans and they are good creatives and they all wanted to make the same movie. Yeah. And that's the thing is you just have to choose who you make your bed with. You know, so, so it's not any big movie. We do want our movies to be seen. We do make our movies to be seen. And I will say that having been an indie filmmaker for as long as I have, it feels like you are struggling for every single audience member mm. is just just scraping for everything. We don't care about the budget that we get to play with. That that's just that's just a function of the story, frankly. That's not mm. that's nothing more than that. For me it's more just I would like more people to be able to see our movie. And even though we have as you know, we have a, <laughs> a good distributor and a Facebook page and marketing and, you know, it's all small. It's very, very small compared to anything else. We're still getting messages being like, where can I see your movie? And it's like, those answers are available, but nobody messages like somebody who just directed a Marvel movie. Where do I see your movie? You know what I mean? So it's, it's just like we can, it would be so nice just to be like, everyone can see the movie. It's right there. Yeah. Uh, and just make it available to a really wide audience and make people aware of it. That would feel great. Well, and from fans of the of the film, The Endless, it's a struggle for us because we can promote it. But if it's not anywhere close, we can't get people into the theaters, you know. So it's nice to have access to a screener. But all we can do is be that word of mouth and be like, listen, it's coming out on this date. You need to go ahead and, and rent it because it's amazing. I know personally... I've told like three or four people after watching it, you got to see the endless and then you've got to see this first movie because you're going to want to watch this. Yeah. And I think that's important. The excitement is there, but you're right. I mean, my voice is not loud. I don't speak <laughs> loud enough for the whole country to hear. And I wish I did for movies like this because they need to be seen. It's These are good movies. And I can see where the struggle is of being an independent filmmaker because the voice is not as loud as something like a like a Marvel marketing campaign. There is no replacement for a multi-million dollar marketing campaign. There is no word of mouth that is good as a multi-million dollar marketing campaign, multi-million dollar. And, um, and the other thing too is uh, theaters don't take independent films. Yeah. You literally can't get independent films into the screen. Um, yeah, because that fourth screen of right. like, they need, or Transformers they need, is going to bring in way more than... that are spending $20 million to be marketed mm-hmm. and people know about them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's just no way around those things. There is no... With all the technology we have and the lower threshold in getting movies made, there is no replacement for that marketing budget and for literally, and and then thus getting the movie into movie theaters to where an exhibitor can actually take it on. Yeah, our listeners complain about this in our Facebook group all the time because we're promoting you know indie films that we see, even even A twenty four films like First Reform. They're like, when is that going to come to my theater? When am I going to ever get to see that? You know, I have to drive an hour to that one random indie theater. That might be showing it for two weeks if I'm lucky. Did you and guys have to plan. I did. Oh well, it was at SIF, so I saw it at SIF. Movie is amazing. It is. It is. Big that, Ethan Hawke fan too, so it, it worked out really well for that. I don't even completely understand how that movie works. That is a, a masterful, devastating movie that I never want to see again. Yeah, that's. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a good description of it. Um, yeah, and I'm reformed as well from theology standpoint. So it was. 
Very interesting experience to go through that one. Speaking of other films, what kind of films have inspired your style? What are your favorites? Like what got what gets you guys creative juices going when you started thinking about making this endless slash resolution universe? And even spring, even though it's not technically part of it, I don't think it feels like it could exist in that same world. So it is actually part of it. You know, we're going to surprise you with a, with a few answers. We well, one thing is I will say in the same way that when we go we head into a movie we don't talk about like what genre it's in you know we don't say like the endless we're making a sci-fi horror movie we just kind of make the movie and in many ways it's equal parts character drama and sci-fi and horror and you know they're they're all they're all just spattered in there and our only rule is just make the movie interesting and make it make it meaningful and then the genre kind of comes out in the wash in that same way we don't really point to other movies in terms of how we want them to to be. So, um, man, we can throw some stuff out there, but um, I guess sometimes the humor in our films has the, the rhythm of almost famous. Yeah. Just the rhythm, just the rhythm of like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. something really dramatic happened. And then at the end of the scene, there was a joke that brought right. levity to the humanity of the drama that just happened. Mm-hmm. And then although they don't, it, our movies don't look anything like it, there's an epic emotion that can happen that's a bit like lord of the rings but that's so different i mean but there's a mythology behind the whole thing that that ties into the emotion i suppose but again we're talking like man tiny little degrees you know um here's an interesting one people like uh the Duplass brothers and uh soderbergh and, and people who just like put on their work gloves and just go make a movie and they're you can feel it in the movie there's an energy to it but also sometimes a deliberate roughness to it not just in the, the camera work and the lighting or anything like that, but like even the performances where it's like, okay, they just tried to catch things that aren't so polished deliberately. The go make a movie side of it and the try to catch the unpolished part of those kinds of filmmakers, uh, Greta Gerwig, Amy Simons, they, they all do that. Those are very much uh, inspirations for us. What else we got? Uh, Is there anything you think you detected in there and we can tell you yay or nay? Yeah. We yeah, watch tons, we watch tons and tons of movies, but we just don't say yes. That's what inspired us. We don't do it that way. Well, just I think it's, yeah, I think it sounds like it's only natural that you're just going to glean little things from your movie experience. It's like the guy who reads a tons a ton of books on a particular subject and starts kind of crafting his own message from that influence. But he wouldn't be able to tell you, yeah, I got this idea from this book and this idea from that book. Right. I know for me, trying to see a filmography of a director or a set of directors has been really interesting because. You, you want to try to find some of that common ground. And all three of these, you guys mentioned, have this kind of grounded premise. Like it starts with a humane type of subject. It starts with a person or two people. And the plot of the, of the film centers around a connection between them and some kind of maybe event that they're going through emotionally, things like that. Even Spring had that. And then it makes this really interesting turn about halfway through to become something just, you could call it out of left field. But at the same time, because you have that grounded structure to begin with, you're still holding on and the the left fieldness becomes more of a enhancement as opposed to like, wait a minute, what just happened here? Instead, it's like, whoa, what just happened? That's pretty awesome. And I think that, I don't know if that's inspired by a certain type of film, but I think it's definitely uh, from a filmmaking standpoint, it uh, shows that it exists in all of your subjects. And so that I would be interested to see, you know, how a drama would play out, how a a heist movie, how an action film would play out with that kind of inspiration, that kind of formula as you go in. Um, because I think that says a lot about your talent as filmmakers and how even if you're not defining what the genre is, it seems like those elements are going to exist 
in that film. It's kind of like with us and Christopher Nolan, we know the kind of things he's going to approach with all of his movies. And so when he came out with Dunkirk, we were like, okay, what's Christopher Nolan going to do with Dunkirk? Because we know it's not going to be a normal war film. And sure enough, it wasn't, but we didn't expect what we got. And it was pretty amazing. And so I think that knowing from the three major films that you guys have come up with, it seems like if we see that in another type of genre, that becomes a really interesting factor, something to look forward to. Mm. Yeah, the uh, idea of not repeating yourself is, uh, I mean, one, it's, it's actually weirdly, it's a theme in The Endless uh, which is funny in that in that to have that idea in the movie, considering that it exists in the same world as Resolution, but um, where it's all about repeating yourself, <laughs> right, right. But I I I do desperately hope nobody would ever look at our fourth movie and think that it's very similar to our our other three, but except for the fact that it's clearly ours. And that, that's what I was getting at was that your footprint or your fingerprint is on all three of these because of those different character elements. It doesn't. It doesn't make it, it's almost like a like a security blanket for me personally, because I'm like, I know that I'm going to get something and that something is what I enjoy. But I don't think it anyway feels like it's going back to the well. Yeah, um, I, I don't want it to come across like that. Yeah. I mean, a really good example is structurally uh, First Reformed and Taxi Driver are basically the same movie, st- structurally, and they are wildly different films. But there's there's a sensibility that clearly Paul Schrader is, I mean, I mean, Taxi Driver, he, he wrote, but still, we're just talking structure. There's a sensibility that he's clearly very uh, attracted towards that, that the word for that is style, you know? Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I, I think I, d- I definitely sense some, some Lynchian, Lynch, David Lynch aspects to your films. Um, and then, you know, obviously this Cthulhu feel to the universe that you've created. I, I have to imagine that that has been something you guys have known about. I, I would be shocked if you do. Down. I, I read no. Cthulhu for the first time two days ago. What? Uh, yep. Okay. Uh, out of because everyone keeps saying it, so I read it. Uh, it was it was all right. And yeah. um, I'm wow. Awesome. No, I and uh, David Lynch was someone my girlfriend introduced me to a little bit before we made Spring. Super. And, cool. uh, and I still haven't seen a few of his like most seminal movies. And that's that's my own failing, to be honest. But I think we we might share some influences, you know, like like, and and maybe that's why. Or you know, for example, like I have me and Justin have read plenty of Stephen King, who read tons of Lovecraft. So maybe you know that's where some of that kind of stuff came out. Or yeah, you get the idea. That's that's um, really awesome. We, we probably that. still tr- like play around in the same pool, but it's not directly those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't tell you where they do come from, though, to be honest. Well, before we jump into the spoiler portion where we kind of dig into the Endless Resolution comparisons, tell us where all people can get your film, The Endless, that's out today for them to go out and find. And then uh, lead us into the spoilers by just, can you just give us kind of your personal synopsis of, of the mythology of this story? Yeah, so the, I'll, I'll give the places you can get it. Uh, I, I know that it's, it's basically anywhere you buy movies, it's available. So there is iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, Vudu, I think. I've never, I don't know what that is, but you get it. All of the, the digital places, I'm pretty sure most VOD, uh, meaning like if you're cable, if you have cable, you can buy movies from your cable company. And then um, I know Walmart and Best Buy uh, and Amazon are carrying the disc. I'm willing to bet that the rest of them, you know, Target and and all of that will too, uh, but I just don't know. But yeah, so they, not not rentable. It is purchasable. Purchasable yeah. and rentable anywhere. Oh, okay, okay, good. Both iTunes and Amazon are probably the best spots, but it's everywhere. Yeah, and uh, 
Redbox might be doing it, but I wouldn't trust that yet. I'd say it's something else. I, I that one I just don't know yet. Oh, yeah. and then oh yeah, and then uh, what the endless is about? It's about these two brothers we meet at the beginning of the movie, and they receive a mysterious uh, tape in the mail. And in the course of them watching that tape, we learn as the audience that the older brother had pulled the younger brother out of what is presumably a UFO death cult um, about a decade ago. And uh, the younger brother's like, oh, you know, what the hell? You know, that they're, they're still alive on this tape. You said they, they all killed themselves. And here we are 10 years later living squalor, trying to make our lives work here. And um, that was our family. Why did we leave if they weren't actually a death cult? He convinces the older brother to go back and at least just like say goodbyes if they are in fact actually going to commit mass suicide. And when they go back, um, they learn there might be some truth to the cult's otherworldly beliefs. That's the non-spoilery thing. And, and for another non-spoilery thing, uh, genuinely, if you're, if you're intrigued and still listening somehow, just go watch the trailer. It just won the uh, Golden Trailer Award for, you know, in its category for Best Trailer. It's edited by this guy named Tim Strube, and it's really, really good to represent the film. We actually love it. And that, that will probably sell you on it more than our two voices talking to you. Excellent. Awesome. Well, then with that, let's start asking some more detailed questions. We wanted to be careful. We don't want anybody to go into this and have any bit of it spoiled for them because it really is a, a wonderful experience. I went in cold, having seen Spring only, not having seen Resolution. Patrick went in on my recommendation, having seen nothing other than The Endless once I started raving about it. And then he actually got to Resolution before I did. And was like, dude, you got to watch this. And then oh, cool. got to have a laugh at me when I had my mind blown. So yeah, let's uh, let's dig into spoilers. Listeners, now's the time to either turn us off uh, and go watch those movies and come back later or, you know, keep listening. So one of the biggest things that I pulled away was after watching The Endless, the, the thing that, that I do is, um, I think it was maybe, I don't remember what website was it. Maybe it was Variety or it was an interview that you guys had given and you were talking about the endless. And of course I'm Googling like the endless meaning and the endless ending and all that kind of stuff. And you mentioned connecting it to resolution. And I was like, wait a minute, I haven't seen this one yet. And so I immediately queued up the resolution and I started thinking, wow, I cannot believe that this is actually happening. (laughs) (laughs) Just Because I love when things connect like that. And one of the questions I had after I finished that was, was this something that you guys had intended after you made resolution was to expand on that universe in creating the endless? Because I know that you mentioned earlier about being able to have this pretty intricate pre-production, like planning stuff out on kind of a wider scope. Did you guys, after completing resolution, because obviously spring came after that in terms of your uh, production, did you always want to go back and into the world of the endless to maybe create kind of a, a macro <laughs> viewpoint um, as opposed to the, the world of resolution. Was this always in the, in the cards or in the, in the plans? Got to kind of look at it in terms of like where we were in our lives and our careers when we made resolution. And, um, and again, that movie was just save up $20,000, get together your friends and, and go make this tiny movie in the woods. We didn't know anyone. It was made in a vacuum. We just did, a lot of stuff ourselves and just did this thing with like no oversight. And, but the thing was, we made it thinking like people, it's possible that no one will ever see this weird project we're doing. We may not get distribution. We may not get into any film festivals. We don't know anyone. We're just going to go make this thing. And so like for us at that point to be like, 
hey, here's the expanded mythology of this would be crazy town. That would be completely insane because, again, we're just doing this thing that we didn't know if anyone would see. Now, that said, even when we're making Resolution, there is a ton of stuff in the story of Resolution that is not on screen. And that is never said explicitly in Resolution because, you know, you don't want to make a movie where characters are constantly saying what's happening. There was just, there was expositional things that it's like, oh, you don't want to say. And and people may even argue, you know, are there, were we maybe too subtle at times in Resolution and didn't get information across that we should have? Maybe, but probably not. I, I think what happens with Resolution is it's this experiential thing where you get a feeling of some, this horrible feeling of dread that there's just something much bigger afoot. And there is, there's lots of discussions about it. So there was that. And then as time went on, though, when Resolution somehow did, you know, we made DVDs, paid our $60, sent it to film festivals, and luckily one got us in, one we got into, and somehow we got distribution. It was bought at the festival and a great success story. That's cool. Over the years that followed, we just kept talking about those characters and that mythology, and it did expand. It expanded beyond that stuff that even this... It expanded beyond the stuff that didn't end up in screen initially and got even bigger. And it's still it's still bigger than what's on screen in The Endless. So, yeah. But well, that's good to hear. Kind of hoping that you uh, keep going with that eventually because I know that it's so intriguing to have films that what I said in my review was that ask more questions than give you answers. I enjoy that. I enjoy the exploration aspect of these. And specifically in The Endless, the relationship is so central. I mean, all this crazy stuff is happening around the brothers, but it's really about the two of them and their relationship. And that's where I, as an emotional film watcher connect the most because I'm concerned with not whether or not this death cult is the right choice for them or not. I'm concerned with, will they find peace? Will they find calm and in a and a nice future together will they be able to come together and get over their past regardless of what that might be um and so i think you guys do a great job of showing that and one other thing about the connection of the two films so in spring you show the monster what was the decision or why would did you make the decision not to do that in the others there's a few there's the biggest reason um, which is very, very simple, and frankly, it's budget. With $20,000 and the budget that we had for The Endless, which wasn't significantly more, there's no room for a uh, monster design that would actually blow anybody's mind. No matter what, you'd be disappointed. You'd just be like, oh, that's it. That's a, that's a dude wearing some rubbers. You know, you'd be like, that. it's just the stupidest thing we could ever do. And so there was that. So we decided, you know, you can't you can't get away with that forever. And luckily, not every film tries to get away with that. Like if Alien were only ever from point of view of Queen, I'd hate Alien. You know, like like I, we we like monsters, we truly do. But a lot of our process is allowing our limitations to guide what we're doing rather than trying to fight against them. And so Resolution has a story reason uh, that we won't. If you haven't seen Resolution, I'm still not going to spoil it, but but there is a there's a very literal story reason why you can't see the monster, you know, because you're the whole movie's from the point of view of the monster, so you can't see it. And then in uh in the endless, since it's you know not as much of like a verite film, it's not meant to be from the point of view, except for a few shots of anything else. In that case, it was just something where we thought, okay, what can we do? You know, we we have a skill set of, of for example, 
visual effects wise, we're, we're good at putting stuff on the horizon. We're good at, uh, we're good at distant, large objects, that sort of an idea. And you just gravitate towards ideas that involve that rather than, uh, rather than trying to say, and then Cthulhu appears, you know, and he's terrifying, but ultimately you look at, actually, I'll go into the Lovecraft example because I just read it where Cthulhu is constantly described as a mix between a man, an octopus and a dragon. And all of the images we have of him is that, except when people actually see that's, that's a statue of Cthulhu. And what, what he actually is, is someone that when you look at him, you go insane. I will definitely tell you, for me, the description of something that is so awful that when you look at it, you go insane. That is way more terrifying than a mix of an octopus, a dragon, and a human. And so you can't put that on screen because it doesn't work. And so you, you find ways to hide it. In The Endless, for example, we showed the immediate effects of it, but never show it exactly. And someday, we would very much like to meet a designer who wants to take on what does the uh, what we call the Arcadian, what does, what does it look like? Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like no matter what, we'll be disappointed. But I'd, be like, I'd like to see it. Well, it reminds me a lot of uh, John Krasinski and his approach to his monster in A Quiet Place and how he mentions in several interviews during post-production that he completely changed it, match what he was trying to go for in terms of its, well, its strength or its whatever you'd want to call it. And I think for your monster in both Resolution and The Endless, it's a lot like Jaws, right? Where the reason why Steven Spielberg didn't show the, the shark was because the shark kept messing up. And so what ended up happening was you had this kind of mystery of this ominous thing that was always lurking and it gave his audience uh, this sense of dread and this sense of fear. And it amplified what I think the success of the film was, the tone of that. And I think The Endless does that as well. But I think more than anything, it sounds like because you guys are heavily focused on character development and building a story around people and the emotional connection, uh, these two brothers in particular, because you had this kind of ominous monster or creature in the background, I never felt distracted. I never, I mean, I was always wondering, hey, what's going on here? But I was never curious as to what the monster looked like, only that it existed and how it's affecting the world that these guys are existing in. And for me, that's what amplified it for me. I didn't want to see the monster in that regard. Mm-hmm. And really well done. Yeah. And, and, and when you think about Jaws, you know, the first thing anyone ever thinks about Jaws is the music. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing they ever think about is uh, Milius's amazing monologue that he wrote for, uh, why am I forgetting his name? But, um, but you know what I mean? And that's it where it's just, that's all you actually care about. That They couldn't have shown us cooler shots of the shark. That didn't matter to anybody. Yeah. Sure. yeah, that monologue by Quint is is really the crux of the film. Yeah. Um. So you said the Arcadian is the name of the monster. I love that. And that actually led me to a question: Is there a meaning behind the name Camp Arcadia? Is there something deeper that you can divulge about why it's called that? Well, there's a camp. It's funny. Originally, it was it was it was it was a couple things. It was that there is a a sort of, I believe it's just an obscure adjective for something that's rural, it's basically Arcadian, but that's based from a Greek myth. And that this uh, this ancient deity is, is obviously much older than ancient, actually not obviously, unless, unless you've seen Resolution, there's no indicator of this. Mm. But, um, but, but this deity is an extremely, it's something, you know. Oh no, there is, the, the monolith. The oh, there is the monolith, yeah. yeah. So that, I mean, that indicates some sort of like, you know, at least probably like pre-Christian type thing. And in Resolution, you see it expressed and you see that it has expressed itself as cave paintings at some point. But that, but, but again, just that the, 
whoever, whoever, whatever the whispers were among the loops of whoever started calling it the Arcadian was aware of the, the Greek myth that I can't specifically remember right now. <laughs> so, well, that's okay. That gives people something to go and Google after yeah. this, right? So they can research it and learn it and go read it for themselves and then try to find that connection. That's what it actually is. Because I'm not going to hit Wikipedia. I mean, geez, it's 7.21 p.m. Well, we'll try to wrap up here quickly. I, I do want to ask real quick about casting because yeah. I, I'm a huge fan of La La Land and Kelly Hernandez kind of really got her break in that film. She's done some other stuff since that, one of which was your films. How did you come to cast her specifically? Because I think she was really great. I mean, everybody in the movie is fantastic but she stood out to me yeah yeah and and uh she's she is actually an extraordinary actor as you might expect and um it's funny she came through our casting director it was the first time we actually got to use a a big boy casting director um named mark bennett who basically just did us a favor because we still didn't have any money but um he's been of course watching her career skyrocket and um thought that we would get along and it's really interesting because we talk about we actually, this is going to relate a little bit to music, but we talk about when you experience magic in filmmaking. We, we, do, we do every little bit of, a little bit of producing and, some, and directing and writing and all of that. None of that's really magical to us because we just know the process. We know how the sausage is made. And so um, one of the biggest things we talk about as being a bit of magic is when, when you first hear the score. And it starts, because I don't know how, to, I don't, I'm, I'm very bad at music. So, so you hear the score and I'm just like, I don't know how you did that, but you just made my movie good. It was bad before. And then another time is when you, when you get the take, that's it, where you're just like, oh, I got it. And I just realized there's a third one. It's when you find your actor and you're just so sure it's that. That's it. When you saw, when we saw Callie, it was just like, oh man, we would be so lucky if she says yes, when we offer her this role. She just slayed it. It might be, it might also be combined with a feeling of relief being like, Oh, that person's out there. <laughs> you know, at least you could see them do the scene. Oh, and she, Oh, by the way, it wasn't, a, it became, it came via an audition. And okay. We, we don't know who anyone is. Oh yeah. 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 We don't know who anyone is. And we were just sent her audition tape. Oh, that's the one that that's, she's perfect for it. That that's the person who should play that role. Um, not even sure if La La Land had come out by the time. You know, and she's also an Alien Covenant and yeah. uh, Blair Witch, but we hadn't seen, I think, any of them. But they're very different roles, and that's that's what I love. Like, she has definitely done completely different types of characters. Yeah, and she, she in the rehearsal process that we were talking about, she actually affected, I think it wasn't the script, but actually a major, I guess, emotional through line. What it was supposed to be is that Aaron's character and Anna's character, played by Callie, are on a path to getting together in a way, like she's awakening, you know, him and, uh, you know, he's a little naive or whatever. And then at the end of the film, it's supposed to be something that he gave up in order to go pursue life with his brother. And we realized in rehearsal that better thing, and this is something that she brought to it, is that he's got puppy love and has no idea what being in a relationship or is remotely like. And she is secretly like 60 years old and definitely is not into this young kid, and uh, but has kind of a maternal relationship towards him. And so when you play that against each other, puppy love versus maternal love, that is so much more interesting and more um, uh, less cheesy and more emotionally honest than what we were trying to do. And rehearsing with her helped us find it. I mean, she's, she's very, very particular, very particular, uh, a very uh, particularly uh, talented person. The thing we sacrificed, though, was, uh, you know, this dude in his early 20s hooking up with somebody who's actually like 100. Yeah, that would have been sweet. <laughs> which, which, is a, 
It's like, it's, it's right up there with, with Michael Jack, J. Fox hooking up with his mom in Back to the Future. It's like a similar grossness <laughs> that you never forget watching a movie. Well, you think, that, you think that's wrong? You got a problem with that, Benson? <laughs> Younger people, people hooking up? Yeah. The moment I realized that when I watched Back to the Future, I just kind of died a little bit when I when I realized that as an adult watching Back to the Future, I was like, "This is not right. This is not what's supposed to be working." It's yeah. so uncomfortable. It's weird. You only watch as a kid. You're just like, I don't know. Something I don't know. know. I don't like it. Is that what doing? Yep. Oh, man. Well, before we let you guys go, we'd like to ask a question with regards to um, their emotional takeaway from film. Our our podcast is centered around how we emotionally connect with individual films as we review them. And we wanted to ask if you guys wouldn't mind sharing a movie that uh, has had a powerful emotional effect on you in some way. And if so, what that effect was. And it can be professional or personal. 20th century women. Wow. Wasn't expecting that. You guys see that? <laughs> I have, yeah. Mike Mills film? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like no particular reason from anything particularly in my life, I don't think. But I mean, I think stories of like mothers and sons just like, I turn in, I just, just Niagara falls down my face and just like start weeping. And But every, I mean, but that's not the only thing in that film. It's, and I just think the movie just is so dramatically effective and it's so human. Yeah, that's mine. It's funny because... You know, he was, we'll, we'll hit each other with movie recommendations. And I'd never gotten a movie quite like this one because he just kept on me like, so did you watch it yet? <laughs> and then like a couple hours had passed. No, it'd be a few days. But hey, so did you catch that? You catch 20th Century Woman? You know, very casual. He really wanted me to watch it. And I was like, all right. And I think I was doing some visual effects at the time. So I was working and I have one other screen that I don't use. So I threw it on as like a half screen. And I ended up just putting my pen down and just watching the movie and just trying not to cry. I was like, this is an insanely good movie. And I don't know how everybody missed it. My movie will be, I'm going to cheat a little bit, but it's not a big deal. It's going to be The Leftovers. Oh. And I will, I'll, I'll specifically target the, the last episode of The Leftovers. So this is spoilers. Oh. We're not going to say anything else interesting. So if you haven't seen it, just stop listening right now or fast forward like a minute. But The Leftovers is something that I've, I've thought about it. and I. Justin and I like it so much that I would trade almost any other cinematic experience for it. I I think it is one of the best things ever created by humans. I I think it's so incredible. And the last episode, you know, there's this huge question of where did everybody go? And that's not really a big question, but it becomes a little more important in the, the third season. And our main characters have a big choice to make and all of that. And the last episode is so bonkers. By the way, have you two seen it? Am I about to blow it for you? Yeah, yeah but are. I know what it is, and I probably won't ever get around. Although now you're making me want to get around. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, put, myself, I'm gonna put myself on mute though, and you can just give me a thumbs up because <laughs> here's what I'll say. No, 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 you're okay. You're intrigued now. So. Okay, you're safe. Okay. Uh, what I'll say is, it just ends on a really good conversation, and that's okay. that's enough. That's not a spoiler. Like it's a really good conversation, and it could be anything else, you yeah. know. And it's just and, that, and it tells you everything you ever wanted to know. I didn't know, and there's things you didn't know you wanted to know that it tells you. Yeah, and like in a way that you never even like it wraps up the theme and the like. It answers the emotional question and the genre question, sci-fi question of the show, basically simultaneously in a way you never knew you needed it. Yeah. And, and it's oddly obvious. It's oddly obvious. It like wraps up the whole theme of the show and everything. That's amazing. Considering Damon Lindelof is the showrunner behind it. And he kind right. of he learned his the, lesson. Yeah, dropped <laughs> the ball on Lost. So let's kind of pick that up with The Leftovers. So that, I'm glad he- it is Lost and the mysteries of The Leftovers. The mystery is less important but it, than in The Leftovers than on Lost. But it is still very mysterious. And it has all this weird stuff. You have no idea what it's doing or why. 
Yeah. But I actually would have been happy if he just had left it and been like, there are things you're not meant to know, you know, and like, that's like what you're supposed to hear in the show. He doesn't. And it's even more satisfying somehow. And it's awesome. It's great. Yeah. Wow. Well, now I'm going to have to watch it. So yeah. you, you convinced me. Yeah. It'd be our new Battlestar Galactica, Aaron. <laughs> yeah, it could be. That's, that's how our podcast got started. We were watching Battlestar Galactica and we would voice each other our thoughts on every episode. And we were like, you know, we should just start recording stuff. And then boom a podcast well thank you guys so much for giving us uh, your time for talking to us uh, about the endless about resolution about your process and and all that goes into that we are big fans and i really do hope that once this is out people will get a chance to see it and i think that more people will become fans just to give you that warm fuzzy i can tell you every single person i've ever met and talked to that has seen any of your movies has thoroughly enjoyed them i haven't met anybody who's seen them who said oh yeah they're not for me everybody's liked it. So it's really just a matter of getting you in front of more eyes. Yeah. Thank you. And also very sincerely, because you were saying, you know, your voice can only get loud enough and stuff to both of you. Thank you so much for being passionate about our work and, and, uh, and being willing to get the word out there. Thanks for having us on. Yeah.